Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I like this. What's going on here? Hey, Laura. Do you like my sound effects? I I, do, I do. (laughs) I wanted to create some block party vibes to start this week's show. Can you picture it? The smell of barbecues, kids running around, neighbors chatting in the evening sunshine. Hey, guess what? I don't have to picture it. I actually went to a block party in my neighborhood just, just a few days ago, and it was so much fun. I haven't had that much fun Oh, I don't know, since before the pandemic started. So I love a good block party, Rachel. But I got to stop you because this is actually a show about climate solutions. And I'm trying to figure out what a block party has to do with climate change. Well, quite a lot, Laura, as it turns out. And I'm here to tell you all about it. Okay. I guess before we get started, I better let everyone know. I'm Laura Lynch. This is What on Earth? where we bring you a world of climate solutions, including block parties, apparently. That's right. And I'm producer Rachel Sanders. It will all make sense soon. Don't worry. All right. I'll trust you. Let's get into it. Okay, Rachel, tell us who you've been talking to about block parties. All right. First of all, I'd like to introduce you to Lynn Trung. She lives in Coquitlam, B.C. That's part of Metro Vancouver. And Lynn and her neighbours have held a block party every year since 2017. I asked her what they're like. It's potluck style. And someone provided a ice cream sundae bar for the end. So that was very nice. And then we just keep talking while the kids go and play hide and seek and pick berries in the neighbourhood. And they stay up until whenever they want to. <laughs> it's the one night of the year that they can stay out as late as they want to, even though it's a school night. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, doesn't it? But this year, Lynn wanted to chat about something new with her neighbours. Before, it was always just about fun and socialising. We had lots of fun things and we tried to, we are very eco-conscientious people. So our party format is minimal waste. So that's what the heart of our blog parties always have been, but never to actually broach the subject of climate change and what should we do about it. Okay. I'm starting to see it, Rachel. I'm starting to see the climate connection. There you go. Yeah. Lynn is passionate about the subject of climate change. And this year, she realized that the annual party in her cul-de-sac was a great opportunity to chat with her neighbors about it and talk about how they might be able to work together on some climate action. What kind of action is she talking about? She wanted to organize a way for people in the neighborhood to reduce the amount of stuff they need to buy. The idea is to have a sharing database where we kind of collect information about things that people have to share, like items, tools, equipment, because we only ever need our big pieces of equipment for the one project ever or maybe once a year. What are we talking about? Gardening equipment? Yeah, or small appliances like sewing machines. Camping gear? Right, or baby equipment or toys or books. Actually, you know, when I think about it, people might even be able to share some sports gear that way, too. That's right. Yeah. And Lynn also imagines people might use the database to share bumper crops from their gardens or 
skills. She's thinking especially about seniors in her neighborhood. Some of them need things like yard work or shoveling and stuff. And I want them to know that they can just ask their neighbors. Even if maybe they need a cool basement to spend their hot days in, that could be asked for. And we hear a lot from guests on our show about just how important strong communities are in the face of climate change, needing to know that your neighbors will be there and that you can rely on them in an emergency situation, you know, such as during the heat dome. So how did Lynn's neighbors respond to the sharing database idea? Lynn said they loved it. So she's going to move ahead and create a platform where people can list the items they have available to share. Now, that's great that her neighbors were on board with the idea, but I, I can just imagine that raising the topic of climate change at a block party might not always go over that well. I know, yeah. I don't know if everyone would feel comfortable bringing up such a heavy topic during a party, but Lynn was well prepared because she had just been through a series of workshops in Coquitlam aimed at teaching people how to work with their neighbours on climate action. It's all part of a project out of the University of British Columbia called the Citizens' Cool Kit, And Lynn said those workshops gave her the confidence to bring up the subject of climate change with her neighbours. It also gave her strategies for talking about it in gentle, approachable ways. I wanted to find out about those workshops, so I went out to Coquitlam for one recently to meet the person running them. My name is Josephine Sen. I've been working in the clean technology environment for about 20 years, mostly solar energy storage. Working in clean technology as a career is fantastic, but now that I have a bit more time with the kids growing up, I feel like I want to take it to the next step and do climate action in my free time as well. Well, work time, free time. (laughs) Josephine just can't seem to get enough of working on climate action. She really can't. No, she she learned about the Citizens Cool Kit program and she took the workshops herself at a Vancouver community centre a while ago. And she asked if there were any workshops in Coquitlam and the workshop leader said, no, you should run some. (laughs) So she did. She took a Citizens Cool Kit training course through UBC, applied for a couple of grants, got some support from her local Rotary Club, and she ran her first community Cool Hood Champs workshops in Coquitlam in June. And for listeners in other parts of the country, there are Cool Hoods Champs programs taking root in other places around Canada as well. What happens in the workshops? Well, they start with some education about the basics of climate change, the causes and the effects. And then they take walks together and they look at the neighborhood from a climate perspective, looking for things that cause and reduce emissions like trees, bike infrastructure, community gardens. Maybe they'll see solar panels or heat pumps. And after that, they think about what they can do to make their own neighborhoods more climate friendly. And they each come up with an idea for a project, a climate action plan, and they brainstorm together about how to bring those plans to life. As individuals, we all can start doing little things, uh, making the changes at home, making the changes in our neighbourhood, being examples of what can be done uh, on a small scale, and then having that conversations with neighbours and, you know, encourage people to just, you know, start more vegetable gardens, for example. So Josephine says climate action isn't just big, expensive things like buying an EV or installing solar panels. It can be as simple as having conversations about climate change with your neighbours. And we've heard this before, too, that just talking about climate change is an action in and of itself. So I guess those kinds of conversations have to start with knowing who your neighbours are, which, and I guess is this is what you had in mind, Mm -hmm. wasn't it, Rachel? That's where we come back to the block party And Lynn Trung's idea. 
Exactly. And I have to tell you, there was a lot of talk about block parties at the Cool Hoods workshop I went to. Well, of yeah. course, you can plant people in your block mm-hmm. party. Just yeah, that's true. Yeah. Plainclothes environmentalism. Yeah, plainclothes environmentalism. <laughs> <laughs> plainclothes environmentalists. Okay, there's a there's a term I've never heard before, I but that. I like it. It actually sounds a little bit, um, I don't know, maybe kind of uh, subversive. <laughs> it's, I know, the image just really struck me, you know, sneaking into your neighborhood block party with the ulterior motive of engaging your neighbors on climate action. So the Cool Hoods workshop I went to happened in a big community room in a rec center in Coquitlam. And one thing that struck me was the wide range of ages of the people who were there. There were young people who looked like they were in their late teens or early 20s. There were parents of young children and there were senior citizens as well. Kathleen Wallace Deering is one of those seniors. I asked her what brought her to the workshop. My neighbor, Josephine, who I met at a block party a year ago, And so it was just a wonderful experience of finding a neighbor who shared a deep concern about climate change. Oh, gosh, Kathleen met Josephine at a block party, of course. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Josephine told Kathleen about Cool Hoods and she was interested right away. She said she was hearing a lot of despair about climate change from people in her life. She wanted to work on local solutions. If we're going to achieve change on climate, the first thing we need to do is find ways of having conversations that are not threatening and to build trusting relationships. I'm hoping that eventually it'll come to the place where we can talk about public policy. But before I can raise that with my neighbours, they need to know that I'm a nice, supportive (laughs) neighbour. Clever. So what other kinds of climate action projects were people at the workshop planning? Well, there was a group talking about organizing a community cleanup of a local ravine and in the process educating people about the importance of local green spaces for fighting climate change. Josephine said pollinator gardens are very popular climate action projects. And there really were a couple of other people planning block parties (laughs) to get to know their neighbours. Sean Salo was one of them. He's noticed a lack of public transportation and bike infrastructure in his suburban neighbourhood, and he thinks people need more climate-friendly ways to get around. He wants to be able to talk to people in his community about advocating for these kinds of solutions. But before he took the Cool Hoods Champs workshops, he didn't really know how to get started. It often seems overwhelming as an individual person to learn how to make any type of difference at all. I've gotten, you know, a lot of tools from this and some knowledge about individual things I can do, but mostly seeing other people that are also interested in in the same issues just yeah gives me optimism that I could potentially reach out to people who aren't actively interested in these issues. So, yeah, I think it's just kind of an introductory foot in the door for um, taking my ideas from ideas into reality. All right, so this is something new for Coquitlam, thanks to Josephine, but but where else are these kinds of workshops happening? Well, they're happening in a few places, but this whole project is the brainchild of Professor Stephen Shepard. He's retired from teaching at UBC, but he's still working on the Citizens' Cool Kit. The Cool Kit is really a package of kind of fun, positive things people can do. It's a sort of do-it-yourself tool. Anybody could really try it in their own neighborhood, but it has this kind of collective action sort of focus to it. It makes it a little different, and it uses lots of fun visual things like climate walks and visioning exercises and mapping that you can do in your own neighborhood. 
Now, the poster child for the Cool Kids project is Oak Bay, which is part of Greater Victoria on Vancouver Island. UBC is supporting people there to work with the municipal government on climate projects. And Stephen Shepard tells me about 10% of residential blocks in Oak Bay have been involved in this work so far. Now, this is a wealthy region, but some of their solutions are pretty simple. They've planted more than 50 trees in boulevards and on private land, and they've just trained up a new batch of Oak Bay climate champions. The Oak Bay project is all about learning what works best when it comes to getting people involved in neighborhood climate action. Stephen wants to get people spreading the Cool Kits program in neighborhoods all across the country. This is an experiment in scaling up. How do you sustain it? How do you grow it? How does it get embedded in the community? That's the experiment. And and that's a tough thing. I think that's where we're going to learn the most is in, in how we how this thing grows and takes hold. So in Kingston, Ontario, for example, they've actually trained a city employee in the Cool Kits model to get neighborhoods involved. So, so what's next for Josephine then in Coquitlam? Is she running any more workshops? Oh, yes. She's already got the dates for her next ones. They're running in September and October. And here's what she says as she looks toward the future. Oh, I'm so excited. Like, this is the beginning of something big, I think. I'm hoping, not just for myself, I think. I'm hoping I can scale this up further beyond Coquitlam. But for the individuals who were here today, these last three weeks, I think they are going to be energized to kind of move forward and, and encouraged to work on their action plan. And hopefully we'll see some real action from our participants pretty soon. So I think we'll, we'll be sure to keep in touch with Josephine, um, not only to find out how things go, but to maybe get an invitation to a block party. That'd be great, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Laura. Yeah, that is my kind of block party. <laughs> Everybody's gathering, and seated among them are the plain clothes environmentalists that we all need to be looking out for. One of them? Maybe could be me. I don't know. <laughs> but keep your eyes open. And if you want to learn more about how to become a Cool Hoods champ yourself or start some workshops in your community, you can search for Citizens Cool Kit UBC online or email us, earth at cbc.ca, and we'll be sure to pass your message along. Let's party. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, another story of neighbors helping neighbors, in this case, to green their homes. It's not just getting new windows and just putting in the insulation. There's there's a lot of technical know-how behind there. That's part of the, the huge part of the value of this uh, community is figuring, you don't have to do all that figuring on your own. And we'll hear about the Pocket Change Project in Toronto. But first, Russia's invasion of Ukraine in late February of 2022 prompted many countries to rethink where their energy comes from. Russia is the world's second largest exporter of crude oil. But this isn't the first time in history nations have reconsidered how to keep the lights on and homes cool in the sweltering summer heat. In the 1970s, an oil crisis sparked energy security concerns around the world. And here in Canada, government and industry alike started research that we can still learn from today. 
Producer Molly Siegel first brought us this story in the spring of 2022. So this is my... Now come in. Okay, uh, well, I'm uh, Alan Jessop, J-E-S-S-O-P. I'm living now in a senior's residence in the west end of Calgary. I've been in Calgary since 1987. Alan is 88 now. He started his career as a federal scientist in 1962. In a pure science program, which was part of an international geophysical effort to look at the the solid earth, the upper mantle and um, the crust. But October 1973 would change the course for Jessup and for many others. Abu Dhabi says it's stopping all oil supplies to the United States and Saudi Arabia, while threatening to do the same, has announced a 10% production cut. And being the biggest single oil producer in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia's stand could well be the cue for the others to take the same steps. The producing countries see production cuts as their best method of bringing oil into the Middle East war because it's the only way they can be absolutely certain their boycott will affect countries supporting Israel. Those impacts immediately reverberating around the world. The possibility of gasoline rationing has been raised in the United States. The chairman of the board of the Chase Manhattan Bank says Americans must be prepared to live with the Arab oil embargo for many months oil, to come. its cost and supply made headlines around the world. Milwaukee. Oil shortages may force schools to close this winter. Paris. A government warning to consumers. Cut down on gas usage or face rationing. Winnipeg. Transair applies for a fair increase, citing labor costs and a 12% increase in the cost of jet fuel. The energy crisis. Emergency meetings and discussions go on around the world in efforts to find answers before it's too late. And the world at six has... Alan Jessup was one of the people called on to help find solutions. We were, as I say, doing scientific work. So the management said, well, look, we're going to have a geothermal energy program. You need to convert. In other words, stop asking big general questions from your office in Ottawa. Instead, Jessup and his team started surveying Canada for sources hot enough to generate electricity or to heat buildings. It was part of the energy research program started in 1976. So by 1976, when money appeared, we were, we were ready. We'd already been able to sort of start a few projects in British Columbia at a place called Meager Mountain, which is just north of Whistler. And we chose that as a place to start because of the chemicals that were in the hot water that was bubbling out of the ground. Jessup and his colleagues drilled into Mount Meager, an old volcano, hoping there would be water hot enough to make electricity. We worked not only in British Columbia and the volcanoes, but we also worked in the sedimentary basins, and particularly with the University of Regina. The university had been promised a new sports stadium and wanted to power it with heat. This time, Jessup's team discovered temperatures weren't hot enough for electricity, but were warm enough to heat the building. But the funding for that fell through. Out east in Nova Scotia, things were more promising. Now, if you remember, Spring Hill was a coal mining town. And they had a mining disaster. They lost a lot of men. They closed the mines. And the whole economy of the town went downhill. They came to us and they said, our mines are full of water. 
The temperature is about 19 to 20 degrees. One, why is it so warm? And two, can we use it? Turned out they could use it to heat some local buildings. I mean, it's nice being a pure scientist, but being a useful scientist is also good. Uh, so, yes, we, we, we enjoyed it. Geothermal was one of the five renewable sources Canada was spending millions of dollars on. Wind, small hydro, solar, and biomass were the others. Research into nuclear fusion was also funded. Then, in 1979, another oil shock. The first day of gas rationing in California forced 10 million motorists to line up for hours on end as they tried to fill up their tanks on the allotted day. In Washington, the Senate gave its long-awaited approval to President Carter's rationing plan, which gives him the authority to ration gas in emergencies. The situation in the U.S. is expected to get worse, and that has led to some concern about the prospects of rationing here at home. In a televised address, then-President Jimmy Carter implores Americans. We'll ask private companies to sacrifice, just as private citizens must do. Certainly there was a very famous um, call to conservation uh, by Jimmy Carter, where he wore a sweater and the room was a bit dark, and he called on Americans to, to reduce their energy consumption. About 30 years old at the time, Peter Love was one of the many Canadians who tuned in to President Carter's address. All of us must learn to waste less energy. Simply by keeping our thermostats, for instance, at 65 degrees in the daytime and 55 degrees at night, we could save half the current shortage of natural gas. Um, And that got a lot of play up here. Love is 73 now, an energy consultant. And back in 1979, he was also working in energy and environmental projects. Carter's call to conserve energy, to be more efficient with it, was also unfolding in Canada. One thing that would be very tempting to do is when you have a supply problem, you have a problem with oil or you have a problem with fossil fuels, the first thing people think about doing, well, let's just get more of it. But back then, they had a very active um, uh, conservation program. Uh, It was a massive program, uh, rolled out exceedingly quickly and very effectively. Love is talking about CHIP. The Canadian Home Insulation Program. Before the internet, the government published books like the 1983 Consumer Resource Exposition Guide, listing programs and services available to the public. CHIP provides a direct taxable grant to eligible householders who retrofit their homes to improve energy efficiency. And COSP. The Canadian Oil Substitution Program. Designed to encourage conservation of energy by making homes more energy efficient, and to promote the substitution of oil with alternative sources of energy. Which included switching to natural gas. In the 70s, the federal government loved its acronyms. There was also PUSH. Purchase and use of solar heating. And FIRE. Forest industry renewable energy. But they must have ran out of ideas for SDWHP? Solar Domestic Hot Water Program. At the same time, Canada launched its national energy program, boosting production and investing in the oil sands and offshore drilling, and made the controversial decision to set national prices on oil. Part of the effort to secure energy supply in Canada, industry was also hard at work. My name is Louis Droll. I'm a professor emeritus from Simon Fraser University, where I taught 
a marine botany for 37 years. The private sector was also knocking on doors of scientists like Drool. It was about 1980. He had recently started his kelp research in the small, remote community of Bamfield on Vancouver Island, not known as a bustling energy research hub. Louis Drool, in rubber boots, long hair, hanging out on the beach, tending to his kelp, then... Out of the blue, General Electric and the Gas Institute of America asked him, can we make gas out of kelp? I could almost see a a little sitcom movie. So here's this assistant professor with an exciting little research program in a little village, 150 people. They're all, you know, very conservative fisher folks. And uh, all of a sudden, opportunity comes to go into the big world. And planes are flying in with people in suits from Philadelphia. They're landing on the water and taxiing up and asking, where do we find Louis Drool? And the whole village got really very excited by this. Drool and his team got to work, looking for solutions to the oil crisis, trying to figure out the technology to turn kelp into gas. Back then, he knew nothing about the vast amount of carbon dioxide kelp could absorb. Instead... There was a frantic attitude, you know, to do something to counter these ridiculous oil prices. So they poured money into projects like ours and other projects, I'm sure. But then all of a sudden, the price of oil went down and they stopped. In the spring of 1983, Drool's research center went back to the quiet seaside spot it had been. And in 1985, under Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, money for energy efficiency dried up. CHIP and COSP phased out. A year later, Alan Jessup was about to get bad news about his own research project. The government said, well, look, price of oil has gone down a couple of dollars. We don't need alternate energies. So just just stop. So we, we stopped. Jessup asked around to see if anyone wanted a report to sum up what he and his team had learned in the last 10 years. But the government said, no, don't bother. Just two years later, in June 1988, a different scientist found himself getting brushed aside. A NASA climate scientist, James Hansen, had a stark warning to U.S. Congress. The greenhouse effect is real. It's us humans causing it. And the impacts are going to get worse. CBC in 1989 on Hansen's already controversial testimony. After last year's brutal summer and a prolonged drought across much of North America, scientists are increasingly convinced that man-made pollutants are partly to blame, the greenhouse effect. But a top NASA scientist, Dr. James Hansen, told a congressional committee that the White House tried to water down his testimony about the greenhouse effect. It is very likely that droughts will intensify at low and middle latitudes as the greenhouse warming proceeds. Global warming. Scientists had known about it for years, but this was the first warning that action was needed now. It would become the reason a Canadian scientist, Steve Grasby, would revisit geothermal. In the early 2000s, Grasby started looking for all the research Alan Jessup and his team had to abandon nearly 20 years earlier. Oh, yes, I had a lot of it because we were still living in our house. I had a large garage full of boxes of papers and all sorts of stuff. At some point, the word got out, and I started just randomly getting big boxes in the mail addressed to me with people sending me all their old files once they they knew someone was interested in it. 
Oh, and that report Alan Jessup wanted to write? It took a couple decades, but eventually he did it. 128 pages in, in this one, and the other one's similar publishing two reports on their findings, which mapped geothermal potential across Canada, both very high temperatures for electricity and lower temperatures we could use to heat buildings. And even now, decades later, this forms the basis of most of what we know. Now, as a new crisis unfolds, there are calls to action, but not only for renewables. To immediately increase the supply of oil, our prices are rising because of Putin's actions. There isn't enough supply. And the bottom line is, if we want lower gas prices, we need to have more oil supply right now. Politicians pitching Canadian oil as an interim solution to cost and security concerns sparked by Russia's war in Ukraine. In this context, recent decisions by the United States and Canada to expand hydrocarbon exports to our European friends to displace Russian oil and gas for the short term are entirely appropriate. Minister of Natural Resources Jonathan Wilkinson said in the medium and long term, other solutions, including renewables and clean technology, are essential to both climate and energy security. But Alan Jessup hopes this moment might trigger more immediate action. I look now and I see the price of gasoline at the pumps. I'm inclined to say, oh, good. (laughs) Perhaps it'll stop people using the stuff. Thanks, Molly, and thanks, Alan Jessup. That story first aired last year. And by the way, you heard reference to BC's Mount Meager as a source for geothermal energy. Molly and I actually visited the volcano last summer. And you can hear that story. Just search A Volcanic Revolution in Energy. Deep in the east end of Toronto is a cluster of townhouses and older homes that make up a tight-knit neighbourhood called The Pocket. It's not just any neighbourhood. It's a community of people committed to reducing emissions by retrofitting their homes together. More than 20 households are part of the project they've coined Pocket Change, and yes, I am. Well, kind of sorry for the pun. They share knowledge about how to make their homes more energy efficient and electrified. Paul Dowsett is a sustainable architect and a resident of the pocket. Joining him is his neighbour, Raj Sandhu, who's in the midst of her own home retrofit. I spoke to them in February about how pocket change works and to get some advice. Hello. Hello. Hi, Laura. Raj, you you moved into the neighbourhood in 2016 and then into your current home in 2019. Tell me what you loved and maybe not loved so much about your home. Um. There were a lot of things we loved about the house. We loved, of course, the neighborhood and our ability to stay here. We um, There's so much natural light um, in the house, which was amazing. There's so much space. Um, it's very well located. We have a, a nice size yard. I think what we didn't love about the house was it, it was going to need a, a lot of work. There's there are a lot of renovations um, that needed to be done because it's quite an old house. Was it kind of leaky and, and not very, um, um, let's say, energy secure? <laughs> Yep, it is very leaky um, and not very energy secure, for sure. In addition to that, I just needed um, a full interior renovation as well. Right. Okay. So tell me what moment stands out for you as you started to retrofit. You know, it's interesting because I reached out to Paul um, 
not about my house in particular, but um, just about net zero uh, related to work. Um, and I had heard about the pocket community. I'd seen the signs around. And so I think what stood out is we had already ordered our windows by then. And when Paul came over to sort of have a look, he made some recommendations of things that we could have done differently. Um, so I think that was when I, I sort of realized it's more than just doing the things. It's not just getting new windows and just putting in the insulation. There's there's a lot of um, technical know-how behind that. Um, and I think that's what stood out for me. And that's the huge part of the value of this uh, community is figuring, you don't have to do all that figuring on your own. Okay, Paul, pretend that mm-hmm. I'm I'm a resident of the pocket. What, what would be my first steps in, in getting my home done, getting this retrofit started? So first steps would be contacting me as the retrofit coach. You know, I have an email address that's published on the Pocket Change Project website. And what I would then do is have an initial conversation with you and find out in broad strokes what your goals are. You know, are, you know, how far along this journey are you interested in going? What do you understand about this? And just give you the basic lay of the land right from the get-go. Then what we would do is we would set you up to get an energy audit. And this is through an NRCAN, Natural Resources Canada, certified energy auditor. And that is the first step to get you on the path to government and utility rebates and grants. So that's a necessary piece. It's also a piece that gives us quite a bit of information about your house. And what normally happens is the energy auditor hands this document to the homeowner, and then the homeowner is supposed to do something with that. The trouble is what's written on the report means something to someone like me with the technical knowledge to understand it, it does not mean anything to your average homeowner. And so then through the pocket change project, we've added another piece to that. We then take the information from the energy audit report and we take your list of desires and what you want to do and your ultimate goals and even your budget and we put all of that together into a retrofit roadmap. And that seems to be the key that's missing in general in what is provided by energy auditors certified by NRCAN across the country. And And that's what we find is the most useful piece to homeowners. And I guess that's what makes you the coach. That's what exactly. <laughs> I, I, got, I got I got some technical knowledge, and I'm willing to share it. And on average, how much would would all of this cost? Because it's not pocket change, is it? Despite the name, <laughs> it's about six hundred dollars for the energy audit, uh, both the pre and the post, and then the retrofit roadmap is about another seven hundred and fifty. The energy audits are covered through a Greener Homes Canada grant. So that's a rebate that you can get. All right. I just want to ask you one more question, though. And I know that this this answer will vary very much province to province, even sometimes community to community and house to house. But how much would someone be looking at to do the actual retrofitting of their home? Roughly. So, so big, it depends question on how much they're willing to do or, or needing to do. You know, your big goal is to get off the gas, stop your carbon emissions. You just want to replace your gas furnace with a, a cold climate air source heat pump. That's going to run you between twelve and $18,000. If you need to air seal and insulate your house 
uh, you know, if you have one of these kind of homes that we have in the pocket built between 1914 and 1920 and very poorly insulated and very air leaky, uh, then you're looking at another thirty-five dollars to $65,000 for that work. That's a, that's a good rough idea, but as I as I acknowledge, there's a lot of different different things that can come into it, including availability yep. of of uh, rebates and grants. Now, Raj, mm-hmm. Raj, what stage are you at with your project now? So we are starting on the exterior to sort of seal up the house from all the leakiness. So we have gotten new windows throughout the house, um, and that alone, you know, that that rent us about forty k. Um, And our next step is that we are going to now um, do the insulation and the cladding on the outside. And so we're, you know, that was meant to happen uh, at the same time as the windows. But as these things go with delays in the windows and delays in sort of getting folks here to to do the outside, we had to wait through the winter. Um, So we've got an extra leaky house for the winter, in fact. But And you um, mean leaky from insulation, not rain? Right. Oh yeah, not right. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, so we have the windows done, and we're looking to get the insulation and the exterior cladding done in the spring. And then what's left? Is it? Are you having a heat pump installed? Yep. Then we will have a heat pump installed, and uh, I'll be calling you, Paul, later because our <laughs> hot water no is just on the fritz right now. Our hot water heater. So we'll likely get a, a heat pump for the hot water tank sooner than we had anticipated. So that's probably the immediate next step, actually. All right, Coach, that's one for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Raj, no problem. I'm wondering. I'm on it. Raj, I'm wondering, though, what's something you you wish you'd known before you even started down this path? Um, I definitely wish I had known that I needed to do the energy audit prior to installing the windows to get the rebates. Um, I did not know that. And so I'm set up for one now. Um, and hopefully we can get some of the other rebates um, around the insulation and the cladding and potentially for the heat pump. Yeah. And Raj, there's a maximum you know, amount that you can get from the rebates. And so you can max out on it in different ways. So although you didn't get it for the windows, that'll be okay because you will get the maximum value of rebates available to you through the insulation, the air sealing and the air source heat pump. Now that's the thing I wish I had known. I've been like regretting this for the past little while. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, yeah. there, there's an acknowledgement of just how tricky it can be to navigate all of the rebates and the subsidies. Sure. Yes, that's and, and that's only one small part of it all. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> um, Paul, could, despite all of that, and, and uh, credit to you for being there and ready to help, can what you're doing be done in other communities, or, or is it just something special about the pocket? Uh, as, as much as I like to believe that we have you know, magic powers here, uh, I don't think it's exclusive to the pocket, and it shouldn't be. I mean, it needs to happen you know, across the entire city of Toronto where we are and in every other home across Canada. You know, we're, we're sitting at the point where you know, the vast majority of the buildings that have been built to date have not been built to the standards that they could and should have been built. And almost every building on the planet needs to be retrofit and taken off burning fossil fuels and electrified with clean electricity. And to that end, we're also wanting to share what we've learned through the Pocket Change Project. And so we are in the process of developing what is currently called the Toronto Home Retrofits, 
we've set our sights on helping other communities across Toronto. We think that's probably big enough for us. But I think that when when we start that help, we'll also figure out ways to roll it out to other communities across Canada and just help those communities and the leaders of those communities to then, you know, we won't go in and help their individual homeowners with quite the same handholding that we're doing here in the pocket. But what we'll do is we'll give the community organizations the tools that they need to then go on and do what we're doing here in the pocket. But, but Paul, here is a really critical question. Do, do they have to come up with their own catchy nickname? <laughs> Are you helping out with that too? <laughs> nope. We, we came up with one and that's all we have to do. <laughs> okay, but in, in, all, in all seriousness, what advice would you give? This is for either one of you. Um, to someone outside of your neighborhood, maybe even in another province, who wants to start their own pocket change? Um, That's a great question. We already have a community association. So where you already have some type of community groups, um, you can sort of bring up this topic of net zero, what people are doing to their homes and start to gauge interest and sort of spin it up in the same way that it has here. I think one thing that I think is really important for the success of something like this is to sort of track the data. And, you know, to Paul's earlier point, um, I think having folks in the community who have already done it so they can share what the benefits are. And, you know, those are often beyond financial, you know, for us, just the comfort of the home, like we feel the draft, we can't heat the house um, to get it as warm as we want. So that is certainly a benefit for us. Um, So just being able to have that community level group where you can start to bubble up the awareness and the interest um, and as folks pass through they can sort of share what those benefits are that they're seeing from actually doing the retrofits. If our listeners have questions about starting this kind of initiative in their neighborhood are, are you both up for getting some emails? I certainly am. Raj? Yeah absolutely. How good of you. We have a pretty pretty loyal following, and they're not shy about getting in touch. So I might be expecting to hear something from them if I was you. But but for now, thank you so much. And Raj, good luck with, with the project as it goes forward. And Paul, to you, good luck as, as you expand the plans for it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, Laura. And you heard Paul Dowsett and Raj Sandu say they are willing to share their insights if you're thinking about starting a similar project in your community. Email us, earth at cbc.ca, and we'll put you in touch. And, and just a note, Paul does this community coordination work on a volunteer basis, but he is paid for the retrofit roadmaps that he helps with. Time now for a few other stories making climate news this week. Alberta is pausing all new approvals of solar and wind power projects for six months. It wants to spend the time assessing where projects can be built, how they'll affect the power grid, and what to do with them when they reach the end of their useful life. It comes as the province leads the country in the growth of renewable energy. But the Pembina Institute says the moratorium puts 91 projects and $25 billion worth of investments and associated jobs for Albertans at risk. Using the courts to fight against climate change is becoming increasingly popular. Columbia University in New York says the number of climate lawsuits worldwide has more than doubled over the past five years to almost 2,200 last year. Several of those cases are before the courts in Canada, including ones filed by young people claiming a charter right to a livable climate. 
The UK government is facing criticism for its plan to authorize more than 100 new oil and gas licenses in the North Sea. The rights to the seabed area, called Rosebank, are owned by the Norwegian state-backed oil company Equinor. Last year, the Canadian government approved Equinor's Bay du Nord project off the coast of Newfoundland. But in May, the company announced it's putting everything there on hold because of rising costs. And of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter, and you can subscribe to that to have it delivered to your inbox every week. Remember, you can listen to all of our episodes on demand at CBC Listen, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review. We love to see what you think of what we're doing here. That is all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producers Danielle Piper and Zoe Yunker, producers Rachel Sanders, Matt Muse, and Molly Siegel. Edziu Lovren is our engineer this week. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.